Hello, friends. Welcome back to another episode of Theology in the Raw. If you'd like to support the show, you can go to patreon.com forward slash theology in the raw. Support the show for as little as five bucks a month. Get access to premium content and become part of the Theology in the Raw community. As I said in a previous podcast, I don't know when I said this, but it was a while back. Um, I have almost exclusively moved my Q&A time uh, f- for uh, Theology in the Raw. Theology in the Raw started as primarily a Q&A platform where you would send in your questions and I would do my best to respond to and sometimes even answer those questions. Um, and I do that from time to time on the public podcast, but I have, uh, I've for various reasons, have moved that part of this podcast to the Patreon-only platform so that most of my Q&A engagement does happen within the tighter-knit Patreon community. Uh, in a sense, it's a lot easier to have those kinds of conversations field the questions that come in when they're uh, sent in from my Patreon audience. And then they're, they're, not only do I get to respond to the questions, but when I post my Q&A podcast, then uh, various it allows the, 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 the questioners or the Patreon community to kind of comment back on that. We can have an ongoing conversation about these complex uh, topics. So again, that's patreon.com forward slash theology. I'll go check it out. My guest today is AJ Swoboda, who is my favorite Christian writer. No offense to NT Wright. Um, and others. Well, actually I, I've got, I've got a few really, uh, Christian writers that I love, but there's something special about AJ and his writing style, the things he writes about his mind is so, I just, the he's, I hate the word balanced. The word balance can be overplayed, but he, he doesn't fit into any kind of one box. Um, he's a, such a good thinker. I love his heart. I love his pastoral sensitivities. I love his mind. And I love that. I can't like predict what AJ is going to say. He's just, he's just, he, you can't stuff him into some ideological or theological box. And he's just a brilliant, beautiful writer. I mentioned his books. I mentioned a few of his books on the podcast. Again, the one that I love probably the most is, uh, a glorious dark. So I would definitely check out that book. He's got another book coming out this spring that I can't wait to read. We talk a lot about deconstruction, We talk a lot about various ideologies today from the far right to the far left. Uh, We talk about, we dabble a little bit into race, uh, the race conversation. Um, We also talk about what it's like being a Christian leader in um, a fairly liberal part of the country in Portland, Oregon. He's not there anymore, but he used to minister there. So without further ado, let's welcome to the show for the second time, I think second, maybe third time, second or third time, the one and only Dr. AJ Swoboda. friends. Welcome back to another episode of Theology in the Raw. I'm here with my good friend, AJ Swoboda. AJ is assistant professor of Bible theology and world Christianity at Bushnell uh, University. And that's not Bushnell in terms of the Irish whiskey. Um, I was informed uh, that is not where the school got its name from, probably very far from that. Um, AJ, are you, you're in Salem, right? Just, uh, no, um, I'm in Eugene, Oregon, which is uh, just 60 miles south right. of uh, Eugene. And we were in Portland for the last 10 years, but now we're in Eugene, which is a big college town. 
And you were, so you were a pastor for a number of years, professor at George Fox, right? And then now you're at Bushnell. Um, tell, tell us what, what, just the 30 second overview of your, the last 10 years of your life. <laughs> yeah. Well, we, uh, just over 10 years ago, moved to Portland, planted a church in the heart of the uh, urban core called Theophilus. And we, uh, got the church going and, um, about a year and a half ago, almost two years ago, we transitioned out and handed the church leadership off to the next generation of leaders and pastors. And they're doing awesome. And, um, we now, uh, I'm teaching full time and I, I'd been sensing for some time, kind of a vocational shift in my own, in my own life. And, um, I get to teach and write and, and serve a lot of, a lot of students. And I also run a, a doctor of ministry program at Fuller Seminary on the Holy Spirit and leadership. So I get to oh, teach wow. and I love it. I love teaching. Love it. Do you like it more than pastoring? Um, uh, no, no I don't, uh, neither of them, um, fulfill all of the desires of my heart. Um, I can say that what I'm doing now, I think aligns a lot more with what I'm gifted at, but I am, I am a very bad leader. <laughs> I'm, I'm not in, um, I don't, I, I find that, that, uh, it's better for me to not run any organization. And right now I probably have about 500 listeners who are like, I want to go to that guy's church. <laughs> no, no, no. A leader who says he's a bad cool. leader. I want to follow that guy. <laughs> I, 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 I did the right thing. And then the people that are leading the church right now are people who should be leading the church. Okay. It's, it's a, it's a very, very good thing. Yeah. And your PhD is from, is it Birmingham University, University or Manchester? Birmingham? That's right. Yep. In the UK. Nope. Yep. Birmingham. There's a, um, it's one of the last state schools that has a little theology department. So I, mm. I did my uh, work in, in, in Britain pretty close to the time. I think you were, were there, although we were in different parts of yeah. parts of the Island, but, um, yep. So I was, uh, university of Birmingham and a the- theologian by trade. So okay. PhD in theology. And AJ is, I said this last time I had John, I'll say it again. Uh, my favorite Christian author. I think last time I said one of, mm-hmm. one of my favorites. <laughs> yeah. And I'm going to say back to you again, uh, you need to read more Christian authors. Uh, that's evidence of your lack of reading. <laughs> uh, AJ is one of the few Christian authors who is an actual writer who happens to be a Christian who happens to have a PhD, but like, unlike 95% of other Christian people that I read, like they would never, they would, they wouldn't make it in the broader writing space. Cause they're not, and I would include myself in this. Like I'm not, I'm not a writer by trade. I'm a Christian who writes because I have ideas. I want to get out there, but you are a master of the, of, of the art of, of writing and while portraying, while conveying amazing content, your book, a glorious dark is is a mm. must read, um, and that that might be a segue into kind of what we want to talk about with deconstruction. A glorious dark. I mean, I you looked at, for lack of better terms, and I don't know if you use this term or if it's just me using it, but the kind of the underbelly of Christianity or the underbelly, the dark side of our faith, seeing God, like hearing from God in the silence, seeing God in the absence. Uh, finding joy in the distance, the darkness, those kind of like mysterious mm. upside down, inside out kind of themes that we often don't talk about. Would that be an accurate way? Or what, what would be your elevator <laughs> yeah. pitch of a glorious dark? 
There have actually been a, a couple of theologians who have used the phrase gray theology, G-R-E-Y, um, as a way to describe kind of this dimension of theology that deals with the, the in-betweenness. Um, you know, there's there's a lot of um, elements of certainty in the Christian faith. I, really, I actually think that there are important elements of certainty. We've gotten so anti-certainty, mm. but we're not, I'm, I'm certain about the love of God, and I'm not going to invite anybody to sort of live in the tension of whether that's true or not. It's certain. Um, but there are a lot of sides to following Jesus that are, that are great. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of theologians talk, talk about the hiddenness of God, the yeah. abscanditus deus, right? The, the side of God that, um, Luther called it the backside of God. Mm-hmm. It's when Moses wanted to see God, but God showed him his back. It's the side of God that, um, that you wouldn't expect the great, the, the gray side of God as it were. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I love, uh, I love digging into those elements of theology that, um, that that are the cracks. I, I just yeah, the, those those are kind of some of the more interesting sides of theology for me. Now, d- did you go through a period of deconstruction? Um, and what did that What did that look yeah. like? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, <clears throat> kind of my my story of uh, meeting Jesus when I was sixteen. I was on fire. Went to acquire the fire. Really on fire. Um, I was uh, fully in into evangelical culture, uh, started going to a Baptist church, and those years were phenomenal. I mean, I, I'm grateful for those years. I learned the Bible. It was um, awesome. And uh, along the way, I went to seminary. And uh, when, when you go to seminary after having had a conversion experience, you learn a lot of stuff in seminary that you just weren't told early on. I remember having... Um, a particular crisis of faith around the nature of scripture. When I was in seminary, I had found a missing verse from the gospel of John, um, uh, John five, four, which is actually not going to be in most of your Bible translations. And I remember, uh, reading this verse, I came across this verse and I called in this, it was a radio program. I called in this radio program, this kind of Bible answer radio program, although it wasn't Hank Hanegraaff, but it was a similar program. And I said, and I asked the question, what do I do with John 5, 4? And the guy on the air, I could tell he was flipping through the, the, the pages of the Bible and he came to it and he said on the air, he says, well, I don't have an answer for you, but I'm going to send you a, a little tape. And this was back in the 90s, early, late 90s, early thousands. And he sent me a tape. Two weeks later, I got a tape in the mail. And on the tape, he said, um, don't worry about this part of the Bible just let it go and keep following Jesus. <laughs> and um, what that did to me very early on was it taught me that um, actually asking real questions about your faith in the Bible was something you were to sweep under the rug. And eventually that led to a pretty big faith crisis. And it actually wasn't until I picked up N.T. Wright's book on Scripture mm. that I began to feel like I had permission to bring my true questions to God and that God could handle them. And by virtue of the right people around me at that moment, um, seminary, uh, yes, there were elements of deconstruction, but I was able to walk through that. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and today follow Jesus with, with all of my heart. But I, I happen to believe that we shouldn't just bring the first fruits of our praise to God. We should actually bring the first fruits of our questions as well. And that, that we need, that we need to worship God with our questions. So I'm just like, I have 
as you're talking, I got my Bible out. There's a Greek New Testament, and there is no John five four. It goes from John five three to John five five. What? <laughs> is yeah. That, yeah, yeah, yeah. The it's, English. Uh, I haven't checked an English translation. Is it? It's got to be in there. They don't just skip a verse, right? Yeah. Well, and the, all the NIV, the one I have uh, that I have right here. There's a classic. You know, the at the bottom manuscripts, uh, yeah. early manuscripts say. And and what likely happened there is something that happens often is that Bible translators and New Testament scholars came to the conclusion that there was a verse that was probably not in the earliest translations, um, in the earliest manuscripts and was included in some of our translations and did the absolute right thing and, and, and put it in a footnote. But, but, but at the end of the day, that actually didn't bring any question that to this day does not bring any question to me of the veracity and goodness of scripture. But at the time it messed with what I thought the Bible was, mm. was, was a book without human fingerprints. Mm. And I've come to believe that scripture, like Jesus, has fingerprints, and that those fingerprints are a signpost that God uses human beings in really powerful ways. But, but, I, but at the moment, right, um, I didn't have um, a whole lot of people around me to talk about it. And today, when a young person has a problem with their faith, what they do is they take it to YouTube. And before you know it, um, there are rabbit trails away from bringing into question everything that they've been taught because, uh, because there are now plenty of voices that will lead us in many directions that aren't towards Jesus. Um, and so at the end of the day, <clears throat> I am seeing young people who are raised in the church who have been given 18 years of training who get to college and in one undergrad class with a couple YouTube videos and a few podcast episodes, um, chuck their faith. And that is a, that is a big, that's a big issue. What is that? Is that gosh, I mean, is that different than previous generations or why is it different today? I, I don't know if it's different. What I mean, um, what I think is different is the speed by which it's happening. Um, we, we now have the capability to find just about any piece of information we want now at any moment's notice. In fact, in my undergraduate classes, I do this experiment with my students. It terrifies them. Um, I ask my students to go and find um, um, scholars, people with PhDs, who deny that the Holocaust ever happened. And what they always find is that there are a ton of people with PhDs who don't believe the Holocaust ever happened. And the, the point being that you, you can obviously now find anybody who says anything you want to say at any point that you need it. And so we, we now have uh, – we are surrounded by professors who have a lot of letters behind their name. But we've lost the, the wise mothers and fathers – who can lead us through stuff. Um, and, and so we, we've basically replaced wisdom with information and, and what's happening is we are just now being informed out of our faith. Would you, would you say um, that, um, Dallas Willard has a line, by the way, in one of his books where he says that the information age will lead to are parched with information, <clears throat> but, uh, empty of formation. Hmm. And that that's, we, we now know, we know everything. Uh, uh, except the int except intimacy with Jesus, mm. and it, and it's um, it's a wild world. I see it in my undergraduate classes every single semester. How what do you mean by that? Like what 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 are you seeing when you say you see it? Describe to me <clears throat> what what you're seeing. 
Yeah. Um, young, young people who come to, uh, to the undergraduate setting, like the school where I teach at, which is a Christian. Come to the classroom. They all of a sudden, I mean, these are 18, 19 year old kids are all of a sudden in a world um, <clears throat> that they were never prepared to live in. I mean, Jonathan Heights talked a lot about this idea of the coddling of the American mind, which he, he argues actually has to do with parenting a little bit, <clears throat> that we spend our entire life creating a bubble of safety for our kids. Mm -hmm. Frank Ferruti is another thinker who talks about we create these security bubbles with for kids. And then they come to college yeah. and they come in full encounter with this whole world. They have never been trained to deal with the world of difference, of otherness, of of difference. There was, there, by the way, really interesting story, the biodome, the University of Arizona spent billions of dollars to build this biodome out in the desert a number of years ago. And they put, they planted all these trees in the biodome. <clears throat> and what they found was they planted these trees, but they would grow up in this self-enclosed biodome. And they would grow up and just fall over. They would grow up and just fall over every time. And they couldn't figure out what it was. And then all of a sudden they figured it out. What's the one thing the biodome doesn't have? It doesn't have any wind. Mm -hmm. And so these trees are growing up, but they were never trained to have any opposition and the roots never had to go down. I'm seeing kids come to college and because there's been no wind, they just fall down the minute there's any question of their faith. That book, The Coddling of the American Mind, is probably one of the top most important <clears throat> books I've read in the last five years at least. Um, that whole there idea, is this, oh man. Well, it's yeah. the whole concept of anti-fragility, right? I mean, and, and Nassim Tlaib talks about this and they kind of drawn his work, but that there's several, there's the human not just human body, but we can start there. I mean, the human body, if you coddle it, it gets weaker, not stronger. Um, when you add resistance, you get, you don't just like, if you, if you go in and lift weights, that doesn't have a neutral effect of, Oh, I can prevent this bar from smashing into my chest. It actually gets you stronger. That's what anti-fragility is or the immune system. If all you do is live in a bubble and you go out in the real world, you'll catch every disease known to man because you're, yep. it hasn't been. And, psychologically sociologically um just biologically <laughs> um the the coddling yeah, of our human it, bodies or the human's intellect um has a reverse effect we, we can maybe it, i mean exactly. the, the, the coddling of the intellect not being exposed to ideas um that challenge you um that might even offend you um that's exactly right and by the way preston there's all of this there, there's all these little signposts along the way that that God actually created a world of biodiversity where he created a world where we actually need different kinds of species to kind of be strong. For example, uh, you will rarely find Jewish people who are allergic to peanuts. Right. And the, the reason is because they when they're kids, they're introduced to peanuts very early on. Another example would be polio. Um, polio, when polio was a the epidemic of a generation, it was almost exclusively the illness of the affluent. Uh, poor people rarely got polio. And the reason is poor, poor kids lived in environments where their immune systems had been tested a lot more. So you have all of these different things. Um, we treat youth groups and churches as environments where we are immune, we, we, they are the places where we go to find out 
why we're already right, but we rarely go to church to be introduced to the difficulties of faith. And there is a power. When I find out about John 5, 4 from Bart Ehrman, it's very different than when I find about John 5, 4 from my pastor. Mm-hmm. And I, when my pastor or a leader is willing to introduce me to the tough parts of faith, it develops trust and hope. But when you find out from Bart Ehrman or your first year theology religion professor, it's like you've been tricked this whole time. Mm. I think we need to introduce to kids the difficulties of the Christian faith earlier. And when we do that, it creates a really, really healthy immune system. So I've, I've, I've often thought, and I don't know, I've, I've said it publicly a little bit, I think, but like, I think one of the most urgent things facing a church today is robust discipleship for youth. Um, and I don't, I, I guess this is kind of a, does it happen? Should it happen in the youth group? Sure. The youth group, youth groups. I don't know. There's been kind of a, you know, I, I saw last time I had a conversation with Francis Chan, it was for this youth. Um, we're, we're, well, I don't get all the details, but we're doing this youth project on sexuality. It's a whole training thing for youth groups. And he, he asked a question. It was so funny. He looked at me kind of funny and says, yeah, I could do that. But do youth groups exist anymore? Like, is that a, a thing? He's like, I don't, our ch- our church network in San Francisco, like, I don't even know of a youth group that, you know, so I think it might've been wow. an overstatement because I do know many youth pastors, but, um, I do think there is a, um, I don't want to say a mass exodus, but I mean, I think the population of youth groups, I think anecdotally at least is much smaller than it was say 20 years ago. Um, so I'm not all that to say, I'm not saying just youth groups at church, but just some sort of broader, holistic, in-depth, thorough, meaningful, honest, hard-hitting, challenging discipleship of Christian youth. That seems to be, from my vantage point, a massive urgency. Is that, and not that it hasn't always been there, but again, we do live in a slightly different age in that we have the internet, kids have a phone at 13, they have access to millions of ideas literally, um, who, how are we discipling our youth in a cultural moment that has never existed before? If we, if we only rely on older systems, older methods, I think we're being culturally naive. All right, go. Mm, 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 mm. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, you're hitting, I think you're hitting some nails on the head because, uh, the, the models of, of youth ministry that we used to integrate re- largely relied on, um, attempting to get kids in the room. This is a, a, a minimum, please, uh, uh, over exaggeration or over, uh, way over characterization of a situation. But at least in the youth groups in which I was engaged with as a young, younger teenager, um, the draw, the draw was this sort of social connection video. You come to play video games, have a good time, have fun. And there's nothing wrong with those social dimensions of faith. Those are really important. We need those. The problem is when that becomes the draw, um, the social dimensions of church can just be replaced by the social dimensions of college or the social dimensions of your your dorm room. Um, There's a a scholar at Gonzaga University, Patricia Killen, she's a sociologist, has written a lot about what she calls the she doesn't call it the, or I call it the Oregon Trail. She calls it the, the Oregon Trail is middle American kids who come from middle America, move to Portland. And within a year or two years, their, their faith is gone. And they've, they've sort of embraced this 
progressive secular uh, ideology. <clears throat> Patricia Killen talks about when people move, um, when, when they make a massive shift in their geographical centering, um, <clears throat> they have to create a new social environment. If we leave our hometown and we leave our church youth group and then we go to some new city, we're going to find some social context. <clears throat> but what we end up doing is, is, is we end up just going for the social benefits rather than a community that's sh shaped around the, the, mm. the gospel or scripture or, mm. or faith. And so essentially what's happening is we are socializing kids into uh, a social environment in their youth groups, but then they find a whole new social group in college and just replace it. <clears throat> the, I, I, think, I think we're social beings. And for too stinking long, um, we have neglected the social dynamic of Christianity. Hmm. Um, and we, we have created an environment where it is about individual faith, and, it, and that is critical. Um, but an individual faith that is not nurtured in a social context um, will just be replaced by individual, another individual set of beliefs in a new social context. So we just hmm. replace our faith with a new set of beliefs in our new social context. Hmm. Patricia Killen's written a lot of really interesting stuff on, 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 on this. Um, there used to be a game when I was a kid called Oregon Trail, and all everybody would die of dysentery on the way out to Oregon. Um, but now the new Oregon Trail is everybody dies of deconstruction, and what happens is they come out to Oregon. I've seen it a hundred times. The middle American kid, middle Midwest kid, comes to Portland, and they're Oregon. They're done. Uh, they're 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 done in a year or two. So what? So and, the, can we can we linger on that for a second? Because I mean, P Portland at the time of recording is a, a big hot spot in the news. Um, it seems that it's you know with the riots and and everything, and it's known for being very progressive. Um, <clears throat> what what is it about that environment that um, is unhelpful or captivates this middle of America kid coming out? Like it's. I mean, on the surface, you would think it's like um, it's anti-racist, it's um, inclusive, it's empathetic, is kind of on the face of maybe a and I, let me just say a, a hyper progressive kind of value system. Um, uh, that's on the surface of it. But you've lived there for a while. Can you talk to us about being on the having a front row seat to where that mm. Where that ultimately leads, or yeah, no, I mean to 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 begin uh, to stick up for for little old Portland's um, the our our news media outlets have done a terrific job of portraying one side of the um, okay. on one side of these protests, and I don't live in Portland anymore, but I'm gonna stick up for it and say that uh, the majority of of protesters and and folks in the city that are attempting to do really really good work are not violent, and then they're not the ones making it on the on the sure. TV. But with that said. Um, just to stick up a little bit for well, the old, old PTN. It, it really depends on the outlet. Because if I if I watch CNN, yeah. it's nothing but people social distancing, mask, singing hymns to Jesus, protesting silently. Then I watch Fox News, and the whole city's burning down. So, yeah, yeah. It's, <laughs> but it's, too, I, it, too it, it's, it's it's almost like I'm looking at two different uh, cities. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Well, I mean, your original question, Preston, was really important. What what is it? What, what is it about a city like Portland? And we could name a hundred different cities that are like this. Um, what is it like Portland that brings kind of this, this spirit of, um, 
uh, what Rene Girard called it, unbounded deconstruction. This 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 world, this liberated world from uh, from from religion or whatnot. There is this. When I was in Portland, there was a. I was driving. This was just a couple of weeks ago. I was preaching at a Mago Day uh, church in 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 Portland uh, for their online service, and I was driving, and there was a a billboard for Portland State University, and on it was a picture of a young uh, African American uh, uh, female student had kind of hipster glasses on and the the tag of the bumper stick the, the tag of the advertisement said question everything okay now when you this is this is portland i'm gonna guess that whoever put this marketing scheme together um that there are limits to what they're asking us to question that they would not want us to question black lives matter that they would not want us to question the concept of love is love or they wouldn't want us to question um the, the, a variety of sort of progressive ideals or uh, conservative ideas. The, the, there's just it, it's 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 not really about questioning everything. That signpost is actually at the end of the day the subtext is um, question tradition, hmm. question religion, quest, question the assumptions, and the the underlying spirit is that. Um, is that true freedom and true liberation is undoing the systems of tradition that represent largely Christianity, largely um, elements of, of faith tradition. Um, and it, th- there's almost this thing in the air. It's a, it's a kind of uh, gelatin in the air kind of this. I, it's really hard to describe, but it, it is this commitment to freeing ourselves from the ideas of the past and replacing them with the new ideas. Mm-hmm. And by the way, some old ideas need to go. I, I'd be the first sure. to say that we need to do away with some, some old ideas. But it, but it is as well a, a, a faith in the new ideas. And it is, a, it is, a, it is a, an epistemic commitment to um, rejecting the ways of the past and embracing that which is new. There, there's a line I can't remember who it was somewhere. I put it in a book that I wrote at one point. But um, one of the things that's interesting about a place like Portland is it is entirely okay to be a spiritual person. Mm-hmm. But the minute you spiritually arrive, there's a problem. Hmm. So be spiritual, but don't claim to land anywhere because it implies other people could be wrong. Hmm. So it's this invitation to a, a means of truth, as long as your truth doesn't have anything to say about anybody else's. Mm-hmm. Wow. Now, that's a that's a really tricky m- move to make because any truth claim uh, is is there, 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 there's this there's this thing going on right now where everybody's saying um, that we shouldn't. We shouldn't say one culture is better than another. That's kind of a thing we're into right now, which I think is absolute baloney. There are some cultures that are better than others. Um, the culture <laughs> of the KKK is not a good culture. And in order to call one culture wrong, you have to have some kind of basis with which to call it wrong. Um, and we all do that. The minute somebody says, I hate Trump, they have a basis, to a standard by which they're judging him by. Mm-hmm. Uh, the minute you say Black Lives Matter, which Black Lives Matter, you are making a truth claim. Mm-hmm. And so what's weird now is we, we're now living in this tension where we're making truth claims, but denying that there's absolute 
transcendent, transcendent truth. So we're talking out of our mouth and at our butt at the same time. <laughs> I think what, what I'm going to be honest, what I love, and I may be off topic here, but what I love about, about the protests and our racial conversation that we're having right now yeah. is when you go and stand out and watch people pour their hearts and souls in our streets to, to make right, right. We are finally, as a culture, willing to look something in the face and say, that is evil and wrong. Mm -hmm. And I would argue in the next 10 years, 20 years, the idea of absolute truth is going to make a raging comeback. Really? Because, absolutely. Because you, can't, you cannot say Black Lives Matter without telling me that there is some truth that applies to all people everywhere. And... Um, I'm, I'm, I wholeheartedly believe we're going to come raging back to the idea of absolute truth. I don't know if it's going to be connected to the Bible at all, but we're going to come back to the idea of okay. absolute truth. Well, yeah, well, I mean, just what you're saying, like when you get to whether it's the far right or far left, obviously the whole idea of absolute truth is a signature idea from the far right or just conservatives in general. But the progressives, I mean, I've said this so many times, I don't want to say it again, but like the 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 tone the ideology of the far left mirrors the far right i so absolutely. ironically <laughs> I had, absolutely um yeah the the next time next time you have a progressive that claims that there is no such thing as absolute truth just ask them about monsanto um a ask them about climate change ask them right. about um whether black lives matter and you will really quickly see that they do believe absolute truth right, is true right, right. it's true they're just not willing to give it that language but but they do right right it was so funny there was um um there's a book I, I i won't i've already mentioned it in previous podcasts but it, it would be a, a very far left progressive book that um i've talked about several times um so, I mean, a lot of the same slogans, it's just kind of rehearsing the same narrative. But there's one point in the book where this author, a female author, um, talked about the whole idea of your truth, the phrase your truth, which comes from, you know, progressive circles. But she literally said, it sounded like she was quoting a fundamentalist pastor. She hmm. said, I want to respect people's truth, but some people's truths are flat out wrong and they need to be confronted. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> These, I wish, I mean, if, uh, I won't grab it. it I was, the, the, I'll, the, the, no, no, I got it. No, I'm, no, no, hold on. Oh, you have it. Okay. I have good. it. I'm not going <laughs> to, I'm going to see if I can yeah, find while, this. While you're finding it, you have to read Adam Grant's article in the New York times a few years ago. The title of the argument, the title of the article is worth the purchase of subscription. The title of the article is, um, being yourself is great so long as you're like Oprah. <laughs> <laughs> and and, and the, the premise of the article is we have created such an idolatry around authenticity um, that being authentic is just being who you want to be. The problem is the pedophile is authentic. Um, uh, we have now – authenticity has become the end game and that's a really big problem because Paul Pot was authentic. Hitler was authentic to himself. Um, we need to stop being stop being authentic. Be like Jesus. That should be our metric for life. Uh, oh wow! Stop being authentic. So here, I'll anyways, just, you, I'll, I want to hear this. I'll just pick it up. Mid, I mean, it's the context. Uh, yeah, it's under subtitle. Speak your truth. Um, uh, yeah. So I have, you know, she, she says, but I have observed people not speaking 
But have I observed people uh, not speaking their truth? Well, yeah. What What if your truth is that you are colorblind? Because throughout the book, she says, um, if you think you're colorblind, that's actually a racist assumption. And it's actually fundamentally wrong and destructive. And so the whole idea of being, oh, I'm just colorblind. I don't see race. She's it's kind of a fundamental evil for her. So she says, what if that's somebody, what if that that's somebody's truth that they are colorblind? Um, then she says, because no one can actually be colorblind in a racist society. The claim that you are colorblind is not a truth. It is a false belief. <laughs> But that, mm. that's exactly what thousands of fundamentalist pastors say about anybody who says, well, I'm just speaking my truth. They say, well, no, that's just a false belief. Um, yet wow. this guideline can give position that all all beliefs as truths and as such, they're equally valid. Given that the goal of anti-racist work is to identify and challenge racism, the misinformation that supports it, um, all perspectives are not equally valid. Anyway, she, she goes on, but it's just it, it was. That's a that's a truth claim to say racism <laughs> is is worse than anti-racism is a truth claim, and that's so important for our society to be able to name that to be able yeah. to say that there's good. Um, there, one of the universities that I'm connected with it has been undergoing a bit of a an uh, a, a bit of a a, a, a a scandal, as it were. One of the students got caught cheating uh on a uh on a test but the the there's a problem is that the student was confronted but the student didn't feel like they were cheating so how how do you how do you confront somebody who doesn't feel like they did something wrong um without some sense of truth claim without some sense we can't even catch a cheater and tell it tell them that they're wrong i mean it, it creates a that's an administrative problem. And, yeah. and, and, but at the end of the day, um, yeah, racism is wrong. And, yeah. and it, that, that, we're leaning on some pretty big absolutes at that stage. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Are we going to say, um, if truth, some would say, well, truth is, is based on social context, right? Truth is, is created by an environment. Well, based on that, if that's true, the majority of white people uh, wanted slavery pre-Civil War. Does that mean slavery was not wrong at that moment in history? Hmm. Um, the, the minute that you argue that truth is environmental, then you have to be willing to admit that if the whole world thought left-handed people should be killed, that that's morally fine. Wow. Wow. So at the end of, at the end of the day, that is what's unique about the Christian the the the, the Bible. Um, there's a guy named Gil Biley who says they didn't stop burning witches because people stopped reading their Bible. He said people stopped burning witches because people finally started reading their Bibles. Hmm. And his and his point is that time and time and time again, Scripture has been the thing that has woken people up to evil when everybody in the world believes in that evil. I think of William Wilberforce Mm -hmm. who woke up, read his Bible and he saw that God, there is a flipping book about the freedom of slaver slaves in the Bible. Mm -hmm. And he read it and he spent his life fighting slavery. Mm -hmm. He woke up every morning addicted to opioids. He couldn't get up without using drugs because it, it took his whole life and it depressed him. He would go lay down in the slave ships in Britain to feel what it would feel like to be a slave. And he did it because he read his Bible. Yeah. 
Wow. Time and time again, the Bible has woken people up mm-hmm. to the evils in a world where everybody believes in the evil. And, and I, I'm kind of, as a professor of Bible, I'm, I'm, it's exhausting having to convince people that the Bible still has a voice. Hmm. It was the Bible. It was the Bible that inspired uh, the abolition movement. It was the Bible that inspired Martin Luther King Jr. It was the Bible that inspired, um, we could go on yeah. uh, time and time again. So anyways. Well, and, and of course, the, the something good can be misused. I mean, the Constitution can be misused. 100%. The Bible can be misused. The Koran can be misused. And that's what... Um, I, th- I keep seeing, I, I'm trying to wrap my mind around this. I, I keep seeing this idea that if something, um, if something you say or write could be misconstrued by bad people to do bad things, that your very thing is, the very thing you're saying is wrong. And I, I, I don't want to turn this into a conversation about sexuality, but I, I often see this in theological debates about the, the definition of marriage and same-sex relationships that... Um, since, well, the argument goes, you know, the traditional view of marriage has been used um, to oppress gay people or more specifically people who believe in a traditional view of marriage have been very oppressive towards gay people. And I, I would agree with that 100%. Not everybody, not the, I, mean, I don't know the percentages here, but absolutely um, too many to name Christians who believe in a traditional view of marriage have been Absolutely. genuinely homophobic and oppressive that's there's no debate about that um for humans living on earth <laughs> um yep. now is the problem the people or is it the text of scripture like is there something intrinsic in that traditional view of marriage that is causing mm. christians you know because that's how the argument goes like this belief yep. is wrong this text is wrong how it's been traditionally interpreted because it's been misused by people and i'm like i just don't i that 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 anybody can misconstrue something i mean any absolutely you know you can look at the life of jesus and misconstrue it in uh, a destructive way um one of one of the last letters Aber, uh, 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 albert einstein wrote uh, one of the last letters he wrote to a friend he is grieving openly grieving because uh he, one of his ideas had been taken to be used in the wrong way. Do you remember what that idea was? The theory of relativity. <laughs> what was it used to create? Wow. The nuclear bomb. Oh, yeah. And he grieved, He wrote this letter grieving that his idea had been used to destroy. How do you think, how should we think God feels when his word is used to destroy? Hmm. Um, you know, C.S. Lewis's classic line is the abuse of something doesn't nullify its original use. Just because people are drunkards doesn't mean that wine is bad. Just right. because, you know, yeah, so that God, God I feel bad for God. Like God's got a tough job. He gives us a book and then we run around to use a book about freedom to enslave. No wonder God gets so angered in the Bible. He should get angry. Angry is a sign of his love and his mercy. Absolutely. By the way, and you know what it's like to have one of your books get misused. I've had my books misused. You could find articles about people that took my words and twisted my words. And it hurts. And it makes you want to write really mean things back and twist their words and do stuff. But I'll tell you, when, you, when God's word isn't twisted, it frees. That's mm. what it does. It oh, frees. That's good. That's it good. Frees. Let's go back to the whole uh, theme of deconstruction. So, you, you, I mean, you, 
you know, kind of hinted or not hinted, but you mentioned, you know, you went through a phrase, a phase of deconstruction. Can you tease that out a little more? What did that look like? How far did you get to the edge of just denying the faith? What brought you back and mm-hmm. what kind of advice would you give to somebody else who's maybe teetering on that edge of like, I'm not sure if I'm going to stay in this whole Christian thing anymore. Well, th- there were, there were a couple of stories along the way that kind of opened my eyes to what was happening. Um, uh, the, I, I think the main story uh, for me, two, two main stories for me that really opened my eyes to what was going on. Um, when I graduated seminary, I um, started teaching and um, what I began to find, this was in the mid thousands, late thousands, I began to find that my students in the seminary classroom were increasingly coming to the seminary environment, not to learn how to serve the church, but were coming because they were mad at the church. Um, meaning they were coming uh, to get equipped Um or coming coming to deal with the pain from the church. And that's absolutely natural. And, and in a lot of ways, seminary is really healthy for that. It can be healthy that you go to seminary as a way to process the difficulty of the church. But I began to find increasingly students who were coming to seminary um, who were coming to find what was wrong with the church or to find what was wrong with Scripture or were coming to find the... Not all. I'm just saying I, it was, there was an increase in that. And I began to notice this kind of deconstruction spirit. And then the second story was I went on a mission trip to North Africa, and we went to the nation of Tunisia. And uh, I remember we went on, on this trip. There were, in this one city we were in, 13 known Christians of about a million people. Wow. And we're this you know group of uh, Christians coming to Tunisia, and I asked if we could meet with the, these 13 Christians and the, the leader in that particular city who knew those Christians who met once a week uh, by candlelight with a broken guitar and one Bible that they shared in a nation where it's illegal to, to largely be, to be, a, be a Christian. Um, they said that we couldn't meet with them. And, and I asked why we couldn't. And they said, um, and th- this was a big moment for me. They said, because, <laughs> because we don't want your white European faith to rub off on them. <laughs> okay. And I don't know what it was about that, but something clicked in me where I began to understand that this kind of deconstructed Christianity that we were be- kind of being fed back here in the States was the absolute enemy of the faith of the poor of Tunisia. Hmm. Wow. And that actually me undoing the Bible in my deconstruction cool way back here was actually the enemy of the faith of these people in poverty. And I began to see I, this. I, I may get, you may get letters for this and I may too. Um, but I began to see that a deconstructed Christianity um, was the enemy of the poor. The enemy of the and poor, the, wow. The enemy of the poor. And that the, 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 the faith of the poor in Tunisia believed in the Jesus of the Bible so much 
and their whole life was based on on a love of that Jesus and that and that my deconstructed version of Christianity was actually more a reflection of wanting a God who looked more like me than the God who actually was. And I began to see that there is an element of deconstructed Christianity that is theological colonialism. <laughs> I want to sit on okay. that for a second. I, I, okay. Let me, let me, I okay. don't want to. Um, here, 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 here. <laughs> I'm just, I'm chewing, man. Here, let me, chewing. Let, me there, let me put it this way. Let me put it this way. We do not go to the Bible to read about the poor. We go to the Bible to hear from the poor. Hmm. The Bible was written by poor, marginalized people of color. Hmm. And when I read my Bible, and I tell the Bible to say stuff that it doesn't say about sexuality, about, um, about truth, about reality. When I tell the poor voices in Scripture that they need to shut up and take my Western white ideals, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. that is theological colonialism. Mm. If I was to go into downtown Portland and start a food cart and claim as a white guy that it was the best Mexican food in Portland, mm -hmm. you know what we'd call that? We'd call that cultural appropriation. Mm -hmm. If I take the Bible and I make it say what I want it to say about sexuality or I make it say what I want about anything, you know what we call that? Mm -hmm. We call that having an evolved faith. Mm. And to me, to make the Bible say stuff that the poor never said is the ultimate act of colonialism. Wow. I think we should let the voices of non-white poor people in the Bible who say things that offend our white sensibilities, they should have the mic mm -hmm. and we should listen to them. And, and that at the end of the day, white progressivism shutting down the voices of non-white people mm -hmm. who are refugees and silenced over history and marginalized is a big problem. Mm -hmm. We would call that problematic. Mm -hmm. Well, that's, gosh, um, again, I don't want to make this about sexuality, but that often is kind of a tip of the spear um, in these kind of conversations. And it, it was fascinating for me. This happened a couple of years ago, a uh, year and a half ago at the United Methodist Church um, Convention about sexuality. I, I don't know the, what it was. It was a big conference. And the one thing I love about the United Methodist Church is that they, they've done um, a great job at being a global denomination. They, they've done, for lack of better terms, missions really well, um, you know, uh, preaching the gospel around the world and letting um, indigenous leaders rise up and have a voice and be their own leaders rather than, um, you know, um, keep treating them like, you know, um, lowly subjects of the faith. And the, there was a bit of a blowback, right? Because, uh, when they had that convention about sexuality, it was a, it was the global UMC church, which happened to have a majority of leaders who were not part of the white Western European Christianity. I think 30 some percent were from African, African bishops and people from the global South. And, it was, I listened to a little bit of the talks, read some stuff, and it was eerie how, from my vantage point, how colonial, and I would almost even, I, I don't use it because the term racist is 
overused. I try to not do that and use it when I'm actually talking about an actual racist belief. Um, but there were some things that bordered on racist kind of statements coming from progressive white Westerners who did not like the fact they were very angry at the fact that you had African leaders and bishops saying, look, we've been colonized by you people before. We don't need to be recolonized by your Western secular sexual ethic. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But it's never couched in, um, it's never couched in like, and, and by the way, it's the Africans and the Asians who actually held the, the Methodist to the traditional view of yeah. scripture. Um, which, which I think I just, I, I find that to be such a redemptive story that their voice was actually heard mm -hmm. and, and respected. Um, but it's couched in, well, in a hundred years, you'll see what we think and, um, and, and we'll change, which is this vision of history that eventually everybody becomes a, a progressive white person. Right. Um, and that the goal <laughs> is an evolved white progressive faith. If we actually want the faith of the poor, the faith of the poor is black and not America. It's, 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 a, it's, it's not white predominantly it's right. predominantly two thirds world. Um, yeah. and if we want to actually honor their voice and who they have, what they have to say, they're going to say things that offend all of yeah. our European sensibilities. And if that's why the church is so important is that we refuse to believe this baloney mm -hmm. that my Facebook newsfeed represents the whole voice of the world. Mm -hmm. the, this, this ethnocentric idolatry that because everybody on my Facebook feed thinks one thing, we must be right. How right. arrogant. <laughs> we need the whole church. Yeah, yeah. Can yeah, I read something yeah. to you? What's that? This is, um, can I read something to you? Sure, yeah. This is, this is, um, this is Brian Zond, who, uh, Brian's just, it's such an incredible pastor, and yeah. he's cuckoo, cuckoo on, but, but brilliant. <laughs> and he, he, I want to read this to you. This is. This I want is you to from, finish uh, that statement, but we'll come back to the. I want to know yeah. where you think Brian's. Well, I'm, I love. Yeah. I, love he, I just. I want to read this to you. It's a, it, just, just hear, hear this out. This okay. is this is Brian's on. Okay, this, and this, this, this hit. This was. This is the, the kind of stuff I'm talking about that has caused me to run back to historic Christianity. Hmm. Brian's on. Me as a white male can no longer see myself as the persecuted minority, pushed to the margins, nor as the Hebrew slaves suffering in Egypt or the conquered Judean deported to, the ba to Babylon, or even the first century Jew living under Roman occupation. I'm a citizen of a superpower. I was born among the conquerors. I live in the empire, but I want to read the Bible and think it's talking to me. This is the problem. One of the most remarkable things about the Bible is that in it, we find the narrative told from the perspective of the poor, the oppressed, the enslaved, the conquered, the occupied, the defeated. This is what makes it prophetic. We know that history is written by winners. This is true, except in the case of the Bible. It is the opposite. This is the subversive genius of the Hebrew prophets. They wrote from the bottom-up perspective. Imagine a history of colonial America written by Cherokee Indians and African mm. slaves. That'd be a different way of telling the story. And that is exactly what the Bible does. Mm. It's a story of Egypt told by the slaves, the story of Babylon told by the exiles, the story of Rome told by the occupied. What about those brief moments of history when Israel appeared on top? In those cases, the prophet told Israel stories from the perspective of the peasant poor as a critique of the royal elite. It's almost done. 
Every story is told from a vantage point, a bias. The bias of the Bible is from the vantage point of the underclass. But what happens if we lose sight of the prophetically subversive vantage point in the Bible? What happens if those on top read themselves into the story, not as imperial Egyptians, Babylonians, and Romans, mm. but as the Israelites? That's when you get the bizarre phenomenon of the elite and, and entitled using the Bible to endorse their dominance as God's will. This is Roman Christianity after Constantine, Christendom on crusade, the colonialists seen America as the promised land and the native inhabitants as Canaanites to be conquered. This is the whole history of European colonialism. This is Jim Crow. This is American prosperity gospel. This is the domestication of scripture. And it is us making the Bible dance a jig for our own appeasement. Oh my gosh, dude. What's, what, what book's that from? It's from one. It's from one of his old archived blog articles. Oh, serious? I don't. I don't think it even made it into one of his books. Oh my gosh, yeah. that should be a book. It sounds but like his something. Point. It's so good. His point is that is that authentic Christianity has always listened to the prophetic voice of the poor. We have a whole book of them, but now with our deconstructed faith, we're shutting the poor up. Golly. And I, it's so important for us to hear that. I, a minor uh, question, maybe even a pushback. You said something that the Bible is written from people of color. Yeah. So there were my Jews, right? How many, you, what, how many white people, Middle Eastern white people wrote the Bible? Well, it, well, it's written by Jewish people. Do you consider Jewish people a person of color? Like is, is Ben Shapiro a person of color, a POC? Okay, don't don't I I don't know I but but, but Middle Eastern the, the the Bible was written by uh, a whole culture of, of 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 Middle Eastern people who would have been, had profoundly brown skin, so I don't know I I'll ask somebody I don't know no it's, I, what, and I'm not trying to I'm just it's a genuine question whether Jewish people should be considered POC. Um, it, you, so yeah, I don't know. I, I don't. I don't. I honestly don't know. I mean, obviously, they've had a history of oppression globally for millennia, and yet in recent history in America, they tend to prosper more than non-Jewish people with white skin. I've I've lived in Israel before, and some Jewish people um, look like Palestinians from my vantage point. Some are way whiter than I am. Like the skin color is is on a. If we're looking at just pigmentation, it is a pretty broad diversity within Jewish people. When we say it wasn't written by white people, I think, I think, it, I, I think in, in a lot of the conversations we're having now about race, white and white culture represents European white culture. And I think in that way, it's fair to say that the Bible is not written by white people. It's, it's written, but not by white culture. It's not a production of white culture. It's a production. Yeah. Um, so Pete Scazzaro does this awesome talk on all the early church fathers. They were mostly Africans. Tertullian was, sure. was an African. Augustine was an, I mean, you have the, 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 so much of even the early church were, 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 were Africans doing faith. Yeah. Um, so I, I don't know, we could get into quibbles about, you know, the, the 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 asking and i'm not i'm not really sure i have a have, have yeah. thought through that one I just, but i, I, I don't just, think yeah. it's under I, debate that it's i don't know anybody i don't know anybody who would claim that the bible is written by european whites even um there was a stupid statement by i'm not gonna say his name because i said stupid and that's kind of demeaning but somebody 
said recently on Twitter that Jesus was white. And I'm like, oh, my gosh, come on. Uh, so, <laughs> yeah, I, but barring a few outliers, I don't know anybody saying the Bible's written by um, European white people. Um, but it, it, it is a real question for me kind of where that because we're so hypersensitive to race nowadays, it's 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 raised some other questions in my mind um, about where those lines are drawn. I, I find it a little more helpful, I think, to say it's written by people who are the oppressed, who are lower on the socioeconomic status, regardless of the pigmentation in their skin, regardless of whether they were even um, – Regardless of whether their race – that wasn't a category back then, but I mean whether their race was the majority or not the majority. They were the oppressed. They were lower rung social ec- economic status. Um, even like – I mean I don't know Augustine's skin color. He lived in Africa. Um, was he – um, was his family line originally from Europe? Because I mean, a lot of Roman leaders lived in Africa. I, mean, I don't know. Tertullian, I don't know his skin color. Maybe somebody does, but um, – uh, yeah, I don't know. It, it, honestly, it's such a minor point. I don't even want to. Want to I just was curious your your thoughts on that. Um. <laughs> yeah, I I just love. I, I guess I guess maybe maybe I'll conclude with this. I love that the book that I read. Uh, um, I love that the book that I read does not care about the peer review process, and that it, <laughs> and and that it is it is a book written by, by poor refugees who are speaking up and their words are my scripture. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I love that. I I would say the Christian faith, the Christian worldview, the Christian ethic um, is, I would go so far as to say it's designed. It's, it's not designed to be in a position of, societal power like when we had that switch in the wake of augustine or uh, constantine all of a sudden now it was like a square peg in a round hole like you they tried to take this thing this this christian movement and make it now in a position of power and it's just it just doesn't it's not it's not it's putting diesel in a gasoline engine it's not it's not designed to operate at that level of societal power and privilege really um yeah yeah exactly yeah. Um, I wonder if we if we push this out even further, um, that that we that that we actually need to we, we talk about okay listening to people of color we talk about listening um, to to people marginalized people oppressed people we, okay we talk about that and we also need to talk about um, uh, reading is this live. No, <laughs> no. I'm gonna. Cut I that don't. Out. I don't Lord. edit stuff. So no. you tread tread lightly, <laughs> dude. This is theology to rob. People expect to hear all okay. kinds of well, outrageous stuff. Okay, I'll put it this way. Okay, Thomas Oden is one of my favorite theologians. Mm. A guy named Thomas Oden. He was at Drew Drew University, and he went through deconstruction like crazy. He was raised in the church, and then college went off, and uh, <laughs> he full on deconstruction. And he tells a story of coming back to faith reconstruction. Mm. And he says he, he had this epiphany that as an academic, he would only read people who were under 40 years old. Mm. Um, he was sort of obsessed with the youth. And he tells a story that when he read the Nicene Creed, um, all of a sudden he realized that the faith that he had deconstructed um, was totally different than the faith he had embraced. And it was a completely different. And he tells this hilarious story about how when he came back to faith, 
Um, before he came back to faith, he would only read people who were under 40. But after he came back to faith, he would only read people who were over 400. Over 400. Oh, wow. Over 400 years old. And his point was, part of being a Christian is that we don't just listen to the marginalized of today. We listen to the marginalized and oppressed historically. Mm, and that yeah. we learn to listen to dead people. And that we learn to listen to the democracy of, of tradition, the democracy of the dead in the word of G.K. Chesterton. We learn to listen to dead and old people as well as everybody who's cool and hip and knows everything now and has a TED talk. Um, How, so. Yeah, but I'm, I've always been curious with you. I mean, I, we may have talked about this in the past before, but like you, you have, you have all the ingredients to be a full on far progressive Christian person. I mean, you you've got an academic, several academic degrees. You're a very creative person. I'm going to guess you're an Enneagram four. If that, I don't know. Um, I'm a three with a two wing. Oh, messed that up. All right. Um, you're, you're not, you're kind of traditional conservative person. You're into things like, uh, creation care, (laughs) ecology. I mean, these are all, this is all just the ABCs leading to a classic kind of very progressive, brand of christianity and yet you i feel like you've teetered on that and and i hate these labels are so dumb but like you still have some very conservative values when you didn't have to um what is am i am i on to something there is that should i be confused or what happened because that yeah We now live in an environment where I am not permitted to find any political party that can say that the lives of the unborn and the lives of the children at the border matter. There is no political party that will allow me to say that we need to really, really, really care for creation and we need to care for human beings and the economy. There is no political party that that I know of that simultaneously will hold to sexual holiness and biblical values around sexuality and can look gay and lesbian people in the face and speak with dignity to them as people who should have rights and respect and love. Mm. And it probably feels like I'm two different people or can't be because I live in a system that can't allow me to fully embrace God's kingdom. Mm. And I think to embrace God's kingdom is to care about the things that God seems to really care about in the Bible. And it will always offend the lines that we divide between what is conservative and liberal. And the truth is, there are things that the Democrats do. Their care for the environment, I resonate with deeply. Mm. And there are things that I align with with the conservatives and their value for the unborn that matters a lot to me. And I think being a Christian now means that you are politically a homeless person, Hmm. Um, that you're politically exiled. You cannot find a safe place where all of God's values are, are, are met. And so, yeah, I, I feel exiled. And I'm going to guess that most people feel exiled who are trying to follow Jesus right now. Um, Mm -hmm. But yeah, that's my theology uh, is getting 
uh, my theology is is becoming way more connected to kind of the historic Orthodox mm. Christian vision, and my politics is getting way more uh, bipolar by the day. I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm just they're just like multiple personality sort of stuff, like from. I, I just, there's no connection point at all. I just can't do it, man. I mean, I, I, I've been reading a lot of news in the last six months. I, I typically am not a news person. I don't follow politics too much. Although in the wake of Donald Trump, it's kind of, you kind of can't not pay attention. Um, but man, I, so I try to read a spectrum of opinions across the different political spectrum. It, it, it's, it's disastrous to your soul as a Christian. Like it's, and I think there's even been studies done on this because traditional media outlets are losing a lot of money and viewership. Mm. They have to have these clickbaity titles and psych- psychologists know how do you get an effective clickbait? Well, you provoke somebody's anger, right? You get them angry and then they read more and then they get more angry. And it, you just, it's just so clear that that's what's happening on both sides. And it's just, I feel even as somebody who's very much aware of that and looking at it from a distance, like I'm an exile living in Babylon. So I'm trying to read the news outlets of Babylon, even though I am decidedly separated from that, I I can feel my soul getting sucked in. Mm -hmm. So, so what about the uh, large number of Christians who don't, aren't even that aware of the danger of becoming too tribal when it comes to politics? Like I, it's, it's no wonder that the societal um, tensions and polarization and anger and outrage has trickled right down into the church. I mean, the same yeah, issues yep. that are dividing non-Christian Americans are dividing the church. I mean, it's yep. yeah. And, and it's up? not gonna. Yeah, it's not gonna. It's not gonna. Um, uh, it's it's not gonna end anytime soon. I, I think the proliferation of, of both of these sides. Um, is is going to just exacerbate and my hope is um that there's this uh, i mean my 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 hope is that we will recognize um the futility in the ideological uh, extremities and we'll find i call, call me a weird evangelical but my hope is that in the midst of this we're going to become so utterly frustrated that we have to cling to something deeper and truer. And that is Jesus. And what's crazy to me, I've had three friends or family members in the last three months who have either given their life to Jesus or have begun to ask questions about the Bible who totally wanted nothing to do with faith before COVID and, um, and, and, and all the the, the racial stuff that we're we're experiencing. And I I think what's, I think what's going to happen um, is it's it, the frenetic nature of this thing is going to get so bad that the something in the human soul, the imago day within us, is going to say, "This doesn't work. It can't work. We need something that's eternal and something that is true and good." Mm. And I truly believe Jesus yeah. is the only hope, um, and not in some sentimentalized way a radical obedience and discipleship to Jesus where we, it's like we hate everything else, but him, that is our only hope. That is our only hope. Can, can you, uh, when, I, we can, we can end with this. Cause you said offline that you had some thoughts on COVID. Uh, we, we are recording this, uh, gosh, what is it toward the end of August? Yeah. Um, so we are still yeah. knee deep in, in COVID. Um, I think this may release in September sometime, but, um, yeah, you said you had some thoughts on 
COVID. He, well, I'm gonna, I, my computer's about it, to die, so I'm going to duck over and plug it in. Here. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I guess you know when you, uh, I bet, uh, when you look at the how do you how do you think about COVID or a virus like this from a biblical perspective? How do you think about this from like a faith perspective? Um, and it's just striking to me. Um, my friend Matthew Sleeth has written a lot about the Sabbath. We, we've talked a lot about this. Um, when you look at the Ten Commandments, uh, or when you look at the Ten Plagues, forgive me, in in the Old Testament when Israel was enslaved in Egypt, and God is attempting to free Israel, um, there are these Ten Plagues, and there is only one. There is only one plague in which Pharaoh has this sort of confession of Yahweh. He says, he calls it, this must be the finger of God. And there is only one plague <laughs> where he says, this must be the finger of God. And it is the plague of gnats, which of all the plagues is the smallest plague, huh. the smallest thing. And I am not saying that this virus is from God uh, in any way, shape or form. But I think things like this, where we are being brought down by the smallest of creatures, hmm. ha has the power to either humble us or drive us mad. I love that as a guy with a PhD, I am non-essential, but the guy stocking the shelves with toilet paper is essential. <laughs> I love that my self-prescribed importance is being questioned right now as an academic. And I think this is God's God is finding a really unique way in the midst of all this, and I do not believe God created this virus, but I believe God is going to find a really creative way to bring us to our knees in humility once again when we realize that the smallest of viruses has the ability to bring us, hmm. bring us down, and the smallest things should humble us mm -hmm. and show us our finitude and our brokenness, and I we are either going to come out of this thing and go back to the normal, which will be death for us, mm -hmm. or we will learn some humility. Mm -hmm. And wow. if we don't learn humility now, um, you know, the death of the firstborn is way worse than this. Um, and I, I hope in our Pharaoh culture, we can learn to be really humbled by what we've been put into. And again, I'm not saying this is the hand of God. I'm not saying God created the virus, mm -hmm. but I do think God wants to use this to break us and humble us um, because we are a very prideful people. AJ, that's a good word to end on, man. Uh, thank you so much for joining me on the show. For your, those of you who have not read an AJ Swoboda book, again, A Glorious Dark is probably my favorite, although Dusty Ones is excellent. Um, your more recent, uh, The uh, Subversive Sabbath, um, is incredible. Um, is that your last one? Is it, was that your most recent one? My last one. And I have a book coming out in the spring called after doubt, which is about deconstruction after doubt. Amazing. Awesome. Thank you so much, AJ, for being on the show. Appreciate you, brother. Thank you, Preston, for all your hard work. Take care.